Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Have you ever been told that your baby isn't quite sleeping right? That maybe they should be sleeping through the night or falling asleep alone? That you should be able to put them down drowsy yet awake and let them just self-settle to sleep? All of these things are common terms that are given to parents as ways of telling them that maybe, just maybe, their baby has a sleep problem. The issue with this is that, what's our definition of a problem? When most babies are doing it, does it qualify as that? Well, that's what we're talking about this week. And to join me with this, I welcome back Dr. Levita D'Souza from an earlier episode on whether or not sleep training affects attachment. Here we get into the nitty gritty about what the heck is a sleep problem and why these definitions seem to exist and what parents really need to know about infant sleep. So join me as we delve into the realm of infant sleep. Welcome back, Dr. Levita D'Souza. Thank you for coming back on and tolerating yet another discussion. <laughs> Thank you for having me back. I am so excited as usual to be back because, you know, we love talking about this. So We do. Yay. And there's so much to talk about with it, too. It seems we finish one conversation and then five more crop up in the list of things to talk about. Absolutely. So this is not going to be the last conversation. And this no. conversation needs to be had over and over and over again. Yes. And so today... We are, out of all the different things we need to talk about, today we're honing in on that idea of an infant sleep problem because under our underlying all of the issues and sleep training messages and fears that families have is this idea that our children have a problem, that our children can't sleep that all of the things that they're doing are bad, wrong, harmful, detrimental to their development. And I feel like this, I mean, we, I know you feel the same. We need to talk about this because there's a problem here, right? And yes, there's a problem and it's not our children's sleep. Um, so, right. <laughs> so the most that's part, true. Anyway. But so let's start because there is this, I mean, let's go over the common conception of what an infant sleep problem is, is generally based upon this idea of either a child who takes a long time to fall asleep at night. So, and I want to just preface before I go into this, because I hear from so many families who have all of these quote unquote problems. And I do not want to dismiss the experience of the parent during this. So it's really important to understand that all of this conversation is not about how hard it is to parent during this, because that's that's a reality. And we can talk about that more. But rather, when we hear the word problem, and especially when it's associated with our child, just like if you hear the word sick associated with your child, there is a panic, there is a stress, there is an urgency to fix the problem. And that is what we're really talking about. So we go back here and we have kids who can take a really long time to fall asleep, kids who happen to wake during the night. And when I say kids, I'm also talking infants, uh, toddlers, 
even preschoolers, but really most of the crux of sleep training is on, you know, starting six months, sometimes earlier, sometimes a bit later. Um, that's what we're looking at here. So they wake regularly throughout the night. And perhaps most importantly to all of this is that throughout their sleep, they require help from a parent, right? What Am I missing something here? Uh, no. So, yeah. So the three things here, long time to fall asleep, frequent waking through the night, and requiring parental assistance to reinitiate sleep once they've woken up. Now, all of these are arbitrary terms because what's long time for one mother or parent may not be a long time for another parent. Um, what, How frequently we're waking up at night can vary from three to six and some see two as a problem and some see three as a problem and then other times even eight isn't a problem. Yeah. Um, and needing parental assistance to fall asleep, I cannot for the life of me imagine the world we're living in where we cannot rely, where an infant or a child cannot rely on a caregiver to comfort yeah. them and help them reinitiate sleep. So. Th that one we'll but need to talk is, about in detail a little bit more. Exactly. Yeah, we're going to get into all of this in depth here. But, you know, one of the things I often see coming up when we talk about this. So those are the criteria that are used in studies that define it. And importantly, let's distinguish here. This criteria is often parental report issues. So yes. parents have to first say, my kid has a problem. And that is just taken as a given that these children have a problem. There isn't often a set criteria for the number of night wakings that are needed, um, how long it takes to fall asleep, which is why it's averaged across these studies. So you find out, you know, the average number of wakings may be four, but it could range from one to 10. And that's going to be, but the parent has perceived that something is wrong and something needs to change. So we want to first start off with the fact that these problems are loosey-goosey when it comes to trying to <laughs> define something, right? Like you think about if you go to a doctor and I have an illness, they're going to check, you know, presence of a bacteria or a virus or something. They're going to look at they may look at symptoms, but they're going to look at underlying causes. They're going to, there's a bit more rigidity into how you're going to go about a diagnosis. You don't get to say, I think I have strep throat because my, my throat's a little tingly and, and I have strep throat. And you would not put them in a study for strep throat without actually doing a culture swab and saying, oh, look, you do have strep throat or no, you have a sore throat and that's something different. And we're going to have to address that separately. Correct. And following on from that analogy, I've often said sleep is like a fever. So when there is a problem, which is manifesting in sleep difficulties, then we should be addressing the underlying problem rather than focusing on the sleep. That's like saying, I'm going to treat you for strep throat just because I think you have a fever of 102, which might be for strep throat, but it could be for something else. But I'm assuming it's strep throat and I'm now going to treat the problem, right? Sleep is exactly like that. So when we are um, stressed, when there's emotional difficulties, when the attachment system is activated, that's where we will start to see some sort of more wakefulness. Sometimes even physical illness can affect mm -hmm. sleep. Yeah. Right. And so focusing on just waking up or focusing on just the sleep is like focusing on the fever and completely ignoring what could be underlying and causing a problem. 
Yeah. If in fact it is a problem. Which is what we're going to get to. And it's funny, yes. you use fever. I use the saying sleep is the canary in the coal mine. It's, right. Right. You're, you send that canary in. When the canary dies, you know, it wasn't the canary. It was a coal mine. And you're not going to go and be, oh, we should send more canaries in because that, <laughs> that's our solution. This is just a defunct canary. Let's find more. No, that's not really how it goes. So we have these, you know, in the research, there's these arbitrary kind of ideas around it. But yes. I do see some people suggest and talk about the DSM as a criteria. And I want to address this because I think it's really important when people are saying, no, 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 no. The DSM has sleep disorder, sleep onset disorder, um, you know, insomnia, all these things that crop up that extend down to being used to justify infant sleep disorders. And <laughs> this is, as you and I have talked about, this is a problem because this is not, the DSM criteria for this was not ever defined with children in mind. These were defined and studies with adults in mind. Ad adolescents and adults. Adole well. part, so, yes, thank yeah. you. Yeah. So it was the sleep onset of sleep difficulties, but more from, from an adolescent and adult perspective, which we know that sleep difficulties can manifest for other reasons. But that was taken, that model was taken and directly applied to infants. That's where the problem started to arise, where we are now pathologizing something that shouldn't have been pathologized in the first place. The other criteria and research, which I think I should have mentioned earlier, um, is sometimes bringing the baby in the parental bed is also seen as a problem. So what are the criteria um, in a, in the, when we're looking at what pediatric sleep difficulties are? Is baby coming into your bed? has If baby is coming in your bed, I beg your pardon, you now have a sleep problem. problem. Um, which, yeah. <laughs> well, it all stems, and I think it's, it's this stems from this model that people have of infant sleep. And this is something you and I are talking in depth about because Levita and I are working on a paper on this. But there is this model of infant sleep whereby people look at infant sleep behaviors, and we can acknowledge in these models that infant sleep is influenced by internal factors. So their age, their developmental stage, illness, all these other things that are going on. Um, it can be influenced by external factors in the environment. So weather, temperature, what they're eating, what's happening, you know, stress levels outside, going on vacation, all these different things, starting daycare or whatnot. All Life um, happens. and it Family conflict, divorce, socioeconomic exactly. status, and even culture. That can also influence the mother-baby interaction. And that's, that's the other factor well, that's, here as well. Exactly. The third part comes in is parental infant. And yet, and, and here we get to, as you said, all the good and the bad. Um, so when there's negative, there's conflict between baby child, baby and child, baby and mother or father or parent. Um, when there's soothing behaviors, all those nighttime responsiveness behaviors get lumped under this group too, is when you, when your baby cries and you go comfort them, that's the parental behavior and where they sleep. Are they in the bed with the parents? Are they in the room with the parents? Are they sleeping independently? Uh, all of that stuff is, is part of this model, except 
Then the model says the only thing we change and the only thing that influences sleep is this parental behaviors, right? Am I like? Yes. So the model is geared towards promoting solitary sleep. And in order to do that, we then modify factors in the model that will reduce parental involvement, reduce parental presence, um, reduce any sort of um, contact with the caregiver online and teach the child to self-settle. So while the model is great in looking at where a problem can arise and sometimes as you and I know that there can be problems Mm -hmm. which are contributing to wakefulness more than one would typically expect for a child that age, the model's great in locating that for us. It becomes a problem when we are now looking at parental behaviors which are promoting self-soothing and, uh, sorry, promoting parent-child co-regulation. That's now becoming a problem because it's getting in the way of self-soothing, which doesn't make sense. (laughs) Right? This is, so we have here, I, I think, you know, right now we're getting to this link between sleep training and this independent sleep, which is really what this is. So the sleep, let's, we're going back to stage one here of the sleep. Stru- what is a sleep struggle? It's or a sleep problem. Well, according to our culture, it's an infant who doesn't sleep by themselves is really what we're getting down to, right? They may define it in terms of number of wakings, number of this, number of that, but at the heart of it, is we're basically telling families that if your baby doesn't sleep by themselves, settle themselves, do everything themselves, there is a problem. Yes. And we're making it about the parent getting in the way of the infant developing consolidated sleep. Yeah. So when we throw words like that around, what we're really telling the parent is if you now, if your baby cries and you rush in and attend to the baby, you're getting in the way of this baby developing their ability to sleep by themselves or develop consolidated sleep. And it can sound scary because what mother wants to do that? What mother wants to get in the way of their child developing an important skill? But that, again, doesn't make sense. (laughs) And we'll talk about why that is, you know, we're going to get there. Um, But, you know, essentially we're coming down to Take the parental presence out and your child will be fine. They will sleep independently. They will wake up, no problem, but they won't call you. And this is where I see the beginning cracks in this, mm-hmm. is that first we're saying they need this to consolidate sleep, but they won't actually consolidate sleep. They're going to wake up, uh-huh. but they're not going to need right, right there. Like they're pitching on parents, they need this to be able to sleep through. And then we're saying, but actually, really, they will wake up because we've had more and more data come out that does this mix between parental report of sleep and actigraphy, which gives us a more accurate representation. And I will quickly go back to that because I did talk about it in another episode. Um, Some people believe that actigraphy measures every single little tiny waking. And it does. But in all of these studies, and just like your Fitbit or whatever little tracker you use at night that tells you how much you woke, there are algorithms and it takes those movements. So it will detect every little movement and arousal that you have, but it uses that information and then 
parses it down to what's really awaking. So what is really happening at a certain time point? And there are different algorithms that people use, but there are standard algorithms that are considered gold standard for infant sleep and then toddler sleep and then adult sleep and adolescence, blah, blah, blah. They all have it there. But we have these algorithms that work. And when we have those, we are getting a pretty good idea of when a baby is awake more so than just an arousal where they might move a bit and then roll back over and go to sleep. So we already see that because of this, the shift in narrative around a sleep problem is starting to change because you have your sleep problem that used to be your kid won't learn to sleep consolidate. They're never going to learn to sleep properly. And now we're shifting it, right? Because there's the acknowledgement, oh, oh, leaving them alone doesn't actually lead them to sleep any better in terms of that consolidation. But now it's these skills, these important, crucial, regulatory skills, right? Mm -hmm. Sleep associations, as they're calling them. So if your baby is used, if your baby is put to bed in a certain way, then they're going to want to use the same way to go back to reinitiate sleep. Probably some level of truth to that, I imagine, because if the baby's got the boob, then, <clears throat> you know, the baby wants the boob when they go back to sleep. Why is that a problem? I don't understand. Or I'm trying to understand. Um, but um, yes, and so it's not the wakefulness now. It's the fact that the baby will rely on those associations and you will have to keep providing that to the baby. And therefore, the baby won't be an independent sleeper. Yeah. And so this is where I want to just quickly go to this idea of, like we said, this link between sleep training and independent sleep is that at the crux of saying there's a sleep problem and why we use sleep training to fix our sleep problems is this idea that really the problem is all about independent sleep. And most of our babies, and I say most because as we'll talk about, sometimes sleep is not normal. Sometimes mm -hmm. there are, but it's not normal because of underlying issues. We uh -huh. can't say that Speaks enough, but <laughs> we'll get there. But sleep is often not a problem. Your baby wakes up and looks to feel safe. So let's get into this. What really is going on when our infants wake? Because it's so important to debunking this idea that it's a problem. And I think it starts with the idea of falling asleep and re-falling asleep when you wake up, to fall asleep or re-fall asleep in the middle of the night, we have to feel safe. At, at the very core of sleep is we feel safe. And when people talk about our babies don't know how to sleep, they need a, you know, we have to teach them this and whatnot. I, I've not yet met a baby who didn't sleep. And this is, in fact, they are born sleeping more hours than they're awake. For the most part, some babies don't. That that happens. But by and large, I don't know. Have you met babies no. where? No. You know, I'm sort of, as you're talking, I'm sort of thinking, but aren't they sleeping in the womb? Like, what's happening <laughs> right? there? Like, like, I'm pretty sure that that's that's how babies are like they're spending most of their time sleeping and if you think about the physiology of sleep that's one of the things that's part of the brain that's online when the baby is born is one that controls sleep and breathing and your basic physiological functions to survive yeah. 
So to say that babies don't know how to sleep is like saying we don't know how to eat. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> you know, yes, babies don't know how to sleep independently. Yeah. Because we want wired to sleep independently. Yeah. Exactly. And that's such a crucial part because that system that's online, it's for the first few months automatic. It is, it's like a reflex. We, mm -hmm. they do it regardless, but they still need to feel safe to do it. And that's that crucial point is that we don't sleep well when we don't feel safe. And this, I, I think of the analogy, I don't know if you ever watched the show or if you got it down there that um, I think it's Naked and Afraid. It was on years ago. We used to watch episodes. So it was kind of like a an intense survivor. So survivor, I never got into because, you know, it's so, I don't know, I'm not even going to get into that. But <laughs> In this case, they're taking these extreme survivalists and they send them into incredibly dangerous areas and they're naked, which, you know, there you go. Um, Great. And <laughs> they have to survive this extended period. And it's they're in many of them get very sick and get carted off. And like, I mean, it, it's intense to watch because it's you know, at the end, they're probably not going to let them die. But if there was ever a show where I felt like they might, that was probably uh -huh. it. And so they take them off, they go off. One of the things you see time and again in episodes is how little sleep is taking place. So they follow them and they are rightfully so quite awake a lot of the night. Their sleep gets progressively worse over time because they're not sleeping very much. And I don't know a single person that would look at these people and say, oh, they don't know how to sleep anymore. My goodness, they've completely lost the ability, lost the ability. to know how to sleep. And no, we look at that and we say, they can hear lions not that far away. They can hear boas. There's, you know, crazy ticks with insane disease right around them. That's why they're not sleeping. They don't feel safe enough to sleep and they're trying to keep one eye open. And in fact, they're actually taking turns staying awake, which is enabling that little bit of sleep that the others can get. But the moment there's a noise that's scary, they're all up. It's And they're often up a lot of the night. So mm -hmm. I, this to me is that example of exactly what our kids are doing. Our babies come into this world terrified, mm -hmm. right? They don't understand where they are. They've come from a very secure, safe, cozy, constantly moving environment into this cold, light-filled external environment for the most part up until three or four months old. Um, they don't even realize they're a separate person from their parents, right? It's only when the attachment system starts to get activated and, you know, starts to develop at six months where they go, oh, hang on, wait, me and mom might actually be different people. Look, this is my hand and I can move it in front of my eyes. Like that's the level of immaturity and vulnerability our babies are born with. Um, and so it would make perfect sense that they want to be close in proximity, contact seeking, skin to skin, with an adult caregiver. Yeah. It just, and you know, following on from your very um, scary example, <laughs> a more benign example would be 
hotel rooms. Many people, when you, if you're traveling for conferences, if you're traveling, getting into an unfamiliar hotel room, most people don't sleep very well. You know, they're quite hypervigilant. And that is because the amygdala, which is this little part of your brain that is responsible for emotional processing, but also threat detections involved in sleep. Now, in an unfamiliar environment, it's constantly on. It's constantly on even in a familiar environment. So we hear the fire alarm and we're, you know, we wake up. We hear a small sound and we wake up. That's the amygdala working. Yeah. It's higher in an unfamiliar environment. Infants are in an unfamiliar environment all the time. They seek comfort through the presence of their caregiver. Putting them in a solitary um, situation is activating the limbic system. It's activating the threat detection system. Therefore, it activates the attachment system. And so they're then going, hey, my body feels unsafe. My, I feel unsafe. Where are you? I cannot sleep. I need you to put me back to sleep now because I just don't feel, I don't feel safe. The proximity seeking then is for the caregiver to pick the baby up, provide that beautiful skin to skin contact, co-regulate the baby, deactivate the limbic system. Okay. And return the baby to a felt sense of security. Attachment theory one-on-one -on -one, really. <laughs> That's what the baby is doing. It's seeking attachment. Yeah. And, and that, I think, should be how we, you know, the new model, as it's proposed, is not you're doing things to inhibit sleep. What you're doing is actually building attachment, building security, building a sense of safety, and allowing our children to know that, that life is, is safe. They're okay with, with us there. I often think, you know, I know there are babies that don't seem to need as much of this contact and all of that. And so there are clearly individual differences. I do wonder how those kids would fare, you know, 2000 years ago. <laughs> like, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> we can look at it both ways though. We can look at it as one because they're so okay and happy to be by themselves. They wouldn't really alert. <laughs> <laughs> any predator to their presence. So they True. could be okay for one. And look, some children are pretty easygoing temperamentally. They don't need that sort of, they're quite happy to be placed exactly. where they are. Yes. And that's not a problem. If that's, the, you know, if that's what your baby is doing, you don't have to feel, you don't feel the need to please go pick up the baby. The baby's telling you they're feeling safe. They're feeling content. They're fine. Yes. Exactly. Okay. And, and I don't want to ever, sorry, I'm not suggesting that there was, you know, something wrong. I no. just always wonder because, you know, we talk about these kids that need support and comfort as being quote unquote abnormal. They're the ones with the problem. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of going from a historical perspective. I feel like the opposite would be more akin that those babies that are so comfortable on their own would be more at risk in a different environment. And they thrive in this environment because of our cultural ideas and everything, but they might've been more at risk 2000 years ago. Um, and in that, so it's not that it was bad for them. They just were at greater risk, just the way we think about those babies that are constantly seeking that affection and that comfort and that reassurance as having the problem now. Agree. Um, and there's two types of non-signaling. Okay. So once the, like the babies you're talking about who are temperamentally more subdued, and then there are babies who are 
who have learned not to seek out the parent. So both look like independent, quiet, self-reliant babies. One may be because of temperamental differences, right? They just, like I said, they just generally subdue. But the other one, and it's sad when you think of three-month-old babies who've learned not to call out. Yeah. I know. And, and this is, we'll talk about that as to what is going in, but I want to, yeah, I want to get back just to this idea of what is the problem here to keep it so that what is really happening, as we said, so we have this idea of waking and needing comfort to go to sleep as a problem. Hopefully by now it's pretty clear that this is actually a survival mechanism. It's an attachment building mechanism. It's it is socially normal, like for, I don't know how else to put it, but I mean, you look at it, it's keeping them alive and it's building that security and safety that we know babies need going forward. And that it seems to have nothing to do with the skill of actually sleeping. Um, and that's really crucial because our babies do know how to sleep. It's this idea of a skill of sleeping independently that we're pushing as something that, so let's talk about that. How normal is it to sleep independently in uh, throughout human history here? I imagine we wouldn't have survived as a species if we slept <laughs> independently. Like I cannot imagine placing, firstly, I cannot imagine placing babies in different caves. Like I don't think that was what happened <laughs> because but, that's one way of ensuring your baby didn't survive. Um, yeah. Because I can't imagine, yeah, okay. And um, if you look at cultures around the world, there's, I think there's some statistics which says 70% of the world co-sleeps. So in my brain, I'm going, you cannot possibly be telling me 70% of the population has got this wrong. Yeah. Or right? the 70% of the population are having difficulties with sleep consolidation because they're choosing to co-sleep with, or because their parents are choosing to co-sleep or because there's, you know, this goes co sleeping with their siblings or they're co sleeping with a grandmother. And this is not, to me, this is a blatant disregard for cultural differences mm -hmm. in the yeah. way we view sleep. Um, now, there are studies which say that, you know, co sleeping parents can view more problems. But again, what we are defining as a problem can vary across cultures. Well, let's just talk about that for a minute, because I see it too, that co-sleeping families report more night wakings, they report more difficulties maintaining, sustaining sleep. And again, all I can go back to is, first off, waking up is not a problem in and of itself. So we want to remember that. But secondly, when we look at parental report of sleep and actigraphy, parents get really, really bad at reporting how often their, their babies wake. But the group that is closest are those that sleep with their babies. Mm -hmm. Because big surprise, if you're sleeping next to someone and they wake up, even if they wake up, kind of look and then roll around and go back to sleep, you're aware of it. And if they wake up and happen to want to talk to you at that point, even if it's 2 a.m. and they just want to, you know, pull on your hair or they kick you in the face because they've decided to go, you know, horizontal, you're going to wake up and be aware of that, too. So this idea that they that there's more problems, 
only holds when we're looking at parent report. And I love that there are researchers really highlighting this. So I, I'm thinking of um, Dr. Panestri's work. Um, mm -hmm. There was a recent article where she talked about how, yes, co-sleeping and breastfeeding families did report more wakings. And this is all, her work is in the context of normalizing infant mm -hmm. sleep. So this is, she's very big on it. And said, but of course they did because we used parent reports. So I would imagine that they're just more aware of these wakings, that it has nothing to do with the actual physiology of what a baby's doing, but rather the parental awareness of what is going on. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not even the reporting that's the problem. It's the interpretation of the reporting that becomes a problem. So yes, I'm more aware that my baby is waking up for a feed, but do I think it's a problem? Maybe not. For someone else, though, and especially, you know, when you talked to, to Dr. Rosier last, um, the previous episode and talked about the cognitive dissonance moms feel, I think in that dissonance is where you're being told it's a problem and you're overriding your own instinct that tells you, but this is normal. But no, you go to your maternal child health nurse, you go to your pediatrician, you go to your doctor, and suddenly the authoritative knowledge is it's a problem. Your baby is waking one too many times, you know, too many more times at night. And then you're going, well, okay, maybe it's a problem then. And so then when you ask it's a problem, it's like, yeah, well, it is. The baby is waking up. It is a problem. Yeah. But if you had enough of the alternate voice that said, no, actually, it's normal. And no, I don't have a problem. These families are not being picked up in research. These families are not being looked at and grossly underrated, especially in a cultural context. Like I don't see many uh, studies done on immigrant families, for example, yeah. where co-sleeping is practiced, but silently practiced. And so we've learned very quickly that we don't go and say these things to the maternal child health nurse because as an underlying fear, the babies will be taken away if they admit that the babies are in bed. And so does your baby sleep independently? Yes. Yeah. Does your baby have trouble sleeping? No. Yeah. Does the baby sleep in a cot? Yes. Everyone knows it's not happening. <laughs> okay, but no one's talking about it. It's this shit, dirty little secret that you keep to yourself. And this crosses a lot of families. I mean, I know there's unique situations with immigrant families because of privilege and the uh -huh. views of those in charge. And that's a topic for another day that we should yes, get into. Is. Add to the long list here. But I know many families that just don't tell them. They don't say anything because they know if they do what kind of answer they're going to get. And that's not what they're looking for. Um, it's not it's not supportive of them or their wishes. And so they just stay quiet. And this shuts down uh, our understanding of what is normal. Because if doctors and everyone else keeps hearing people saying, oh, my baby sleeps independently. Yeah, they sleep through the night. Well, the next family that comes in and says, no, they don't. A doctor says, well, all my other parents, they say they do. And in reality, that number is probably very skewed. It's not mm -hmm. exactly what's going on. This reminds me of a paper I read years ago, and I wish I could remember the author right now, but I can't, where they actually did look at the criteria for um, the criteria for what a sleep problem was in terms of most, what most studies were using was kind of greater than three wakings a night mm -hmm. and taking longer than 20 minutes to settle or something. And they compared it. So they took the objective measures from parents or 
semi-objective because it was still mm -hmm. parent report and everything. But they compared that to the parents reporting whether there was a problem. And I believe it was done in the Netherlands where there isn't as much of a, a push of the idea of what's normal. If you're happy, there you go. Uh, yeah, right. That that worked. It might have been Norway. I'm not anyway. Somewhere up in that region that place, there, which seems to be evolved slightly better in this. <laughs> situation, <but> yeah, <laughs> and the numbers were staggeringly different. It was you know something like forty to fifty percent of babies would have a quote unquote sleep problem, but only something like three percent of parents reported that there was a problem. And those numbers are not exact. I'm, I'm trying to remember. Yeah. It might be 5%. It was definitely a very low number that felt there was a problem. But all these other parents would have been told you qualify with your child as having a sleep problem. And, you know, even when we think about what a problem is, the other part to this that I go is not only is it, are there biological reasons for it um, from both what we talked about in terms of the the attachment seeking behavior, the safety seeking behavior, survival. When so much of a population that is young and doesn't have the capacity to develop really bad habits, let's be honest. I mean, our six month olds are not out smoking cigarettes, robbing <laughs> liquor stores. You know, these are not skills that have come up. They can't feed themselves. They cannot go to the bathroom and wipe themselves after. They cannot get dressed. They can't speak in most, I mean, there are some very early speakers, but by and large, let's say they're not talking. So the idea that somehow they have this cluster of problems should be a huge flag to us that somehow our definition isn't making sense, right? It's just not right, is it? Like this baby, the babies don't realize they're a separate being uh, from their parent. And so how can that even be? And, uh, and the fact that they are doing what a species expected yeah. for survival, which is proximity seeking, is being pathologized is just beyond me. Yeah, It just doesn't make sense. It's yeah, exactly. Like there's this point of there's, you know, it's too frequent. And I don't want to say I know there's a fallacy of saying just because someone something's common doesn't mean it, it's not a problem. You can look at things like huh. obesity, diabetes. Of course, there's that. But when we're dealing with infants, and especially because even those that promote it, let's just take it one step further. We'll almost all acknowledge for the first few months and everything, this is totally normal behavior. It's that somehow we've decided there's this timeline and some people say four months, three months, some people say six months, some people say nine months, that there's apparently this magical flip. There's a switch that goes off in which our infants, and it is always in, in infancy, are able to do these things and they should just naturally be doing them automatically. And if they're not, then that's our worry. Yes, and I think this, uh, the analogy that comes to mind here is, yes, infants do it, that they do consolidate sleep slowly in their own time for the most part, but that doesn't happen between un until two or three years of age. Uh, when the attachment system's fully formed and there's language and there's the ability to seek proximity through other means, not just physical contact, um, and the ability to understand the world in slightly more... <laughs> 
um, solid terms, for the lack of a better word, and concrete terms, not just, I just need you know to, you to be close to me. And the example that comes to mind is walking, for example. Okay, so yes, it's a skill that's developed. But to expect a three-month-old to walk is a problem. We know that not because the problem lies with the infant, the problem lies with our expectations. Um, we know that anywhere between nine and 17 months is somewhat typical. So I don't like normal because then, you know, normal and abnormal or whatever. But typically, we can expect a child to start to walk between the nine-month to 17-month-old range. Does that mean we need to teach the child to walk if they're not walking by 12 months? No, you create conditions where they can do it, but we don't enforce that on the child because we know setting a child up to meet an expectation that's not age and stage relevant can actually be more damaging to the child's self-esteem, to the child's um, physical, um, you know, uh, the set, set balance and all of that sort of stuff. Now, that just speaks to the inter-individual variability that just because the child walks at 17 months, it's not a problem. And just because the child walks at nine months, it's not a problem. It's just that, and time. To use that analogy to go a step further is there's also times where kids can walk outside of that realm uh -huh. and it's very normal. So I think about um, there are certain tribes in the rainforest, in the tropical rainforest, where they hold kids up to three years because the dangers of letting them go free are too great. So they still learn to walk closer to age three and they're okay. It's just that there is a specific environmental factor that means that has to be delayed. And similarly, for kids with sleep, although we look at consolidation, and I want to just quickly talk on some of that consolidation too when we talk about normal infant sleep, but it may be even later for some kids mm -hmm. than the two to three, because there may be factors that are still not a concern, but do affect sleep and mean that it's going to come online a little bit later. And that's okay too, that that's Absolutely. very normal as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so on this tone of, of, of walking is, with the analogy of walking, it, it's a steady, they make a progression towards it and then they do it. Sleep is not like that though. No, And that is the thing that so many families forget and it gets lost in the research. So I remember listening to Helen Ball talk at a conference years ago. Um, and she was talking about the guidelines that came out way back, you know, in the 90s, 80s that, you know, by six months of age, something like 50% of babies were sleeping through the night based on that five hour definition. So let's first remember that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Let's step oh, yes. back a minute. Sorry. I know. The definition in research of sleeping through the night for years was a five hour stretch, not 12 hours, not, not 10 hours, hours, not nine, five, a mm -hmm. one five hours and not two five hour stretches. Just uh -huh. one five-hour stretch. And the five-hour stretch could happen from 7 in the evening to 12 in the night, and that would be it. Yes. And then they might wake regularly, but if they did that, that was fine. So by whatever six months, I think it was, they had approximately half of babies had met this. Now, I have heard, just as Helen spoke about, so many people use that. Well, if half our babies can do it, why can't the other half? 
And that's like the walking analogy. Just because half our babies may be walking by 13 months or 12 months or 14 months, whatever it is, doesn't mean there's something wrong with the other half. They're just working towards it at a different pace. And probably there's other skills they're working on right now that are going up. But what she also pointed out that gets forgotten, and this goes to this normal sleep trajectory, is that by 12 months of age, a majority of those kids that had been sleeping through at six months were no longer doing so. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, I've never seen someone who supports sleep training or talks about this consolidation bring that little nugget up into the conversation. They just seem to treat it as, no, 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 they made it, they hit this milestone, and now it's met forever. It's not. It's not. It's not. And then, and then that sets the stage for parents coming and saying, but my baby was doing it. Something's gone wrong. I now need to sleep train again. And again at 18 months. And again at, you know, because your baby, unlike walking, which once you've acquired it, you've acquired it, sleep can go back and forth before it's fully consolidated. And so you can have other factors coming in at say 18 months which is the you know this um, peak of separation anxiety between the 18 to 24 months you can have teething you can have um you know lots of other changes happening in the family all of which will impact sleep and so you will have brief disruptions up until the child develops language and you know uh, develops the ability to somewhat sleep independently and so we have parents then going, did we fail? Mm-hmm. Or should we sleep train again? Or what's going on? This is a horrible problem. And it just, it's so heartbreaking because then the babies are subject to multiple rounds of sleep training, which I can't imagine being good for their development. Like, yeah. We don't see it like we've talked about in the previous episode. We don't see it in the attachment research. But are these babies actually participating in the research? We don't know. Yeah, exactly. And and it doesn't mean that there aren't other potential issues as to what's happening with that, um, especially that repeated over and over and over again. And this ups and downs of sleep is something that families have to know. So if you're the parent of a 12-month-old, you're just in the the thick of it. This is not the beginning of it getting better. And this is something I always feel so strongly about advocating for because we have this perception in our culture. There's been a shift, I think, in understanding infant sleep. So I know more and more families that say, no, 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 I now understand my baby needs to wake more. My baby needs to you know, get to me and and I need to comfort them and stuff, but we have a time limit on it. And so our culture allows it up to typically around a year. People then say, okay, this has got to, got to change. Sometimes it's early. There are definitely people that advocate earlier, but most of the time I see really responsive parents who hit a year and then they're like, well, I've done this to myself. Clearly, because my kids should be sleeping through the night and sleeping on their own. And 12 months is just the beginning of the ups and downs, really. I mean, it's not just the beginning. They started before, but it's a wild ride 
between 12 months mm -hmm. and, you know, two to three years of age, there's so much going on. And when we think about this, of what's going on, you know, I think about all the stages. So you think about physical development in terms of walking, running, jumping, all these skills, these gross motor skills that are being developed. Fine motor skills are being developed. Social skills are huge. You think about just the shift between 15 and 18 months in understanding other people, because that's the famous, the broccoli uh, goldfish experiment. So for those of you that don't know it, at 15 months, if you present a child with a broccoli and a goldfish, they will pick their favorite. Most kids pick the goldfish, just a little tidbit <laughs> of that there. Uh, but some pick the broccoli, go them. Um, and then they offer the researcher something. The researcher says, oh, I'd like one. And the researcher always looks happy at the one the child didn't pick and looks kind of icky at the one the child did pick. They don't want that. And then they ask the child, please pass me one. And they don't specify with language, it's pass me one. At 15 months, it doesn't matter the facial cues that the researcher gave. Those 15-month-olds will give them their own favorite all the time. The world is all about them. I like it. Everyone likes it. I know everyone loves it. Everyone shares the same. This is why we see young kids who see someone in distress and they're like, let me get you my mom because you yeah. want her. She's the one that fixes everything here. Um, but by 18 months, we see the shift where suddenly they can take the other person's cues into perspective to say, oh, well, I like the goldfish, but apparently you like broccoli. You're a weird person, but sure, I'll give you broccoli. You go. And there you go. And just, I know that doesn't sound big for us as adults. That's such a, an easy skill, but that is a massive skill when it comes to thinking about the way in which a child perceives the world and the way in which they interact in the world and the doors that opens. So you think about now every person they look at, what's happening, what are they taking in from that information? And this brings us right back to what we were talking about earlier with sleep is unfamiliar environments, mm -hmm. attachment-seeking behavior to feel safe because that unfamiliarity is all of these other people. All of a sudden they're different because before they were just, you might as well be looking at you. Just big you, little you, guy you, old you, small you. They're all you. And now you're starting to see individuals who are different and not as predictable. We don't know what they want. We don't know what they're going to do. And that lack of predictability also activates the threat detection system. Mm-hmm. And so our, our infants are going to be going through all infants, toddlers, all of it going to be going through all of these changes at different stages. And as these skills come online, they have to relearn all about the world again. And this means sleep requires sleep. more from us. It all uh -huh. comes sleep. All these it does, things. doesn't it? But also at that time, you see the attachment systems is becoming, is getting formed completely, right? So when you look at attachment, is a balance between exploratory and proximity seeking. At six months, the baby is not exploring anything. The baby is only proximity seeking, right? But as they develop locomotion, as they develop perspective taking, as they go, ooh, autonomy around the 18 to two months of age, I can do this myself, no thank you. I can eat the spaghetti bolognese myself. No, thank you very much. Um, no, I'm not going to wear that dress. I'm going to wear the Elsa dress because, you know, <laughs> as they start to exert their choices and the exploratory behavior develops, 
they can go too far out in the world sometimes and go, uh, oh, time to come back to mom, gone that little too far sometimes. Um, and that can be processed during sleep. We know that sleep is a time where motor skills and skill development is also consolidated. So that can trigger all sorts of fears for children. Why would they not seek out their parent? And that's why they're waking up more to go, hey, hang on, mom. I went too far in this park today. I saw this really scary man or scary woman or scary child. And at that time, I couldn't tell you because I was so busy having fun. But now that I'm sleeping, my brain and my amygdala is processing that experience. And I'm terrified. Help. Yeah. And this is why I I bring this back to the work by um, Wells Nystrom. And this was a study out of Sweden years ago. And I love it as the analogy of what's going on. So for those that don't know, everything I've read in the research about Sweden, I've I've only been once to visit and it was lovely. I adore it there. I would love to go back. Um, but the idea there is that most parents are very, what my kid needs, I do. So it, it's a very follow the lead, but there's no, you know, attachment parenting isn't big as a thing. It's just, well, what does my kid need? And if my kid sleeps, if they need to come into my bed, they come into my bed. If they're happy on their they're happy on their own. And there's not a lot of uh, rules around what you should be doing. And the understanding from other is the same there. So they looked at co-sleeping starting at age one to five, because in Sweden, by age one, a lot of babies are not co-sleeping. They are sleeping in their own environment, in their own room, in their own space. But what they found was that from age one to five, the rates of co-sleeping, the rates at which children wanted to come into bed with their parents on a regular basis, steadily increased from ages one to age five. And I think of this, and they talked about it, in the context of the anxieties and the fears and the experiences that happen at that stage. So when we talk about sleep consolidation, you think about a nine-month-old should be able to sleep through the night. Well, don't expect your four-year-old to necessarily sleep through the night because so much is happening. So much is there for them to process. And we see this. Now we have, you know, just the other last year or 2019, I've lost track of years because of COVID. And I, I, I don't know what year we're in. I don't know what month I'm in. Um, a study came out that looked at toddler sleep ages two and a half to three and a half. And they looked at the number of wakings they had. And the numbers were so high compared to so many other things. And this was a large sample that they had for this. And this was actigraphy again. And where they specified, going back to that idea about how they manage wakings and looking at um, the algorithms they use, these kids, they only looked at wakings that were longer than five minutes. So they really put a hard line on, no, they have to be awake, physically awake, showing enough movement to say that they are awake for five minutes. So this is not an arousal. This isn't your, I didn't recognize my arousal full over there. Mm -hmm. And they were averaging four to five wakings a night. Of oh, wow. Yeah, over five minutes. And that's I don't think we're selling this well to parents the way my child will never sleep. Are you suggesting my child's never going to sleep? Okay, so maybe if you've made it this far with us, they will sleep. And But here's the thing. At that age, they weren't necessarily getting their parents all the time. Some might have. Is that? But they were processing. 
it goes back to this idea of what they're processing. And, you know, a lot of families who have three, two, three-year-olds do find they come in from nightmares, do find they do wake up mm -hmm. sometimes and need us to support them back to sleep. And we accept this because we know something's going on. Something is bothering them for the day. And that is, that's a very normal state of affairs. Absolutely. That is, you know, that's not a sleep problem. No, that's a, I'm having trouble processing the world problem. And the way we fix those problems is to be there. Is by providing safety. Yeah. <laughs> we fix the underlying reason. We fix the fear. We don't, we, we, we let the child know, yes, you feel, you, you're, you're worried. Yes, you're scared. Nightmares can be incredibly scary. Um, and, you, uh, you know, as a two and a half, three, as imagination's kicking in as well, they cannot tell the difference between reality and, you know, there's imaginary friends for heaven's sake, and they can be scary. Yeah. And so all of that can affect sleep. But the difference is, and this is where I think we should be selling this slightly different to the parents, they don't take 20 minutes of breastfeeding to go back. That's like a true. newborn sometimes will. We will continue to seek proximity and it doesn't stop even in adulthood. If any adult, I mean, there are some adults who can sleep through, I'm certainly not one of them. I cannot switch off my brain, but I'm not calling my mom to breastfeed me back to sleep. Yes. Exactly. And I actually don't even want her to breastfeed me <laughs> or comfort me back to sleep. That's kind of, you know. So to say that you need to deprive the child of this or they will continue to rely on the mother to settle them back to sleep is a bizarre notion because it's age and stage relevant. As infants and children, yes, it's the mom or the dad or the primary caregiver or the grandmother, whoever that is. But in adulthood, I do, I do like a cuddle for my husband. Yeah. I do. You know, so if I'm waking up terrified in the night from a nightmare or whatever that is, I like to know there's someone besides me. Yeah. The attachment system just transfers from my parent onto my partner. Yes. That's all. And that is why, I mean, we all do like sleeping with other people. Like when uh -huh. we think about adults sleeping with our partners, that is, that's because they make us feel safe. And uh -huh. we like feeling safe. Why do people get roommates and, you know, pets? Pets, yes. There pets. you go. That's another. Pets, they mm -hmm. help us feel safe. They've got mm -hmm. us. There is someone that, that meets that need for us, which is so important. So, yes, I thank you for not terrifying all the parents as I do. I just, you know, <laughs> the worst case scenario there all the time. <laughs> you mean I'm going to have to rock my baby for 45 minutes? My but five-year-old for 45? No, you don't. No, you no, don't. Because they exactly. will realize you're there and your and proximity is enough for them to reinitiate re sleep because they've already consolidated it by that age. And you know what? If they need more than that, then that yeah. just tells you the degree of fear of whatever it was that Something happened. Something else is going on. Exactly. That's the sleep is a fever. Yeah. That needs to be addressed. And that can be a great indication to go, what's happening at school? Yes. What's happening in childcare? What's happening in your friendship circle? Are you feeling pressure? Are you, you know, have you started a new class? Is something happening? You know, what's going on in your daily life, <laughs> which is now impacting your ability? Are you processing this in your sleep? So what's happening? I need to know. Yeah. And we're going to get there in just a moment. I just want to quickly run back to something because you talked about the idea of, you know, we're not building up what was it? You said something about we're not building up the need that we're going to always have to be there. You know, we do transfer that attachment system. What I also want to say, though, is that at this moment when they are young, whenever I hear people say, oh, 
you're letting them just get used to using you or they're going to need you every time they wake up. Good. I say brilliant. Yes. I want my kids to know they can come to us as the people that support them during this stage. I don't want them thinking they can't come to me for a fear. Because just, and just because the fear may not be one that I understand or I might think is necessarily scary because I'm an adult and I have the cognitive capacity to rationalize that away. It is still important to the baby. It is still important to the child. Um, If my child's able to come to me in the middle of the night and say, mama, I'm scared, help. What that's going to look like is I can rely on my parents. Relationships are safe. I can rely on my friends. I can rely on my partner because my needs are important. I can express those needs adequately and I can trust that others will satisfy those needs. My template for relationships is pretty secure. Yeah. And that, as you talked about before, and we'll have to do another episode on it, but talks about how we use that framework in building our later relationships and what we look Mm -hmm. for, for everything. And it's, you know, I always think when I hear about kids, I hear so many times the counter that, no, 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 my kid's just learning that nighttime is for sleep. They're not learning that I'm not there because I'm there all day. I'm there all this. And you know what? I will be honest. Maybe there are some kids that really do learn that. I don't know. Because I think it depends on how much they need people at night, right? This is the the issue, that individual variability, that temperament. Some kids may be like, I don't really need you at night. I'm not really bothered. So therefore... There are kids like that. And I'll tell you when that happens, when puberty hits. (laughs) That's when they go, leave me to my nighttime. Thank you very much. You can go piss off in your own room because I don't need to be with you anymore. It does. And I do recall, you know, reading a paper. And this was, again, I don't know how long ago. But when they looked at the average, um, when the co-sleeping ceased or when the child stopped coming to seek parental assistance, coincided with adolescent development. So when puberty hit and suddenly there was a need to move away developmentally from the caregiver and transfer that attachment onto the friendship circle, because that's what happens in adolescence, which is why friendship groups become important. Suddenly the proximity seeking to the caregiver reduces. It will still be activated when friendship circle problems happen, when things at school happen, you know, but not to the same extent as our babies and younger children do. Yeah, exactly. And so we want our kids to be there. We definitely want children to know. And I know adults that have come back and said, you know, I remember being told I couldn't leave my room. And the thought was, and, I, and I've and i heard the counter to this of people saying, no, I've told my kid they can't leave their room, but of course they know that if they're sick, they can. Of course they know that. That's a given. And yet I have all these adults that share after, I really didn't know. I remember throwing up in my room. I remember, you know, crying hysterically, but knowing I couldn't go get someone or believing I couldn't go get someone. And so one of the things I always caution with families is there will be kids again for whom that doesn't even come up as an issue. Mm-hmm. But our children understand the world and they understand our intentions and our actions and our words in a totally different way than often we intend them to. It is, they perceive things differently. And it goes back to think about what we talked about that development of just understanding other people's desires. If they can't even understand, 
that someone else who looks at a goldfish and goes, Bleh, doesn't want one. We may be asking a lot for them to read between the lines of, I'm not coming to get you, but if you're sick, you can call more, come back. I don't know what that looks like. Or as they get older, yes, you are allowed out, except I've gotten mad at you every time you got out. But this time is different because you feel sick. Mm -hmm. Those are nuances that as adults, we may understand. But I do believe it's taxing what our younger children are able to understand, if that's fair to say. Agree. So before we close up, because I mean, I hope I realize this has been a conversation that's gone in many directions. The goal of it has been to highlight that what is said to be an infant sleep problem or child sleep problem really isn't when we look at it from a biological framework, when we look at it from an attachment framework, from a cross-cultural framework, and that the idea then that our problems all stem from parents who are um, going in too much and interfering and doing all that, that's that's really not possible. Um, that's, there's an exception to that. But um in the extreme cases, you can see parental involvement affecting sleep. But we're talking uh -huh. about cases where parents have extreme postpartum anxiety. They may mm -hmm. actually be actively interfering to, out of fear, is my baby awake and rousing them. That's a very separate kind of topic. But it's worth acknowledging that that can happen. But that's rare. That's not common. So that's clinical population, right? So there's a yeah. small section of this population where that is a problem. I just find it hard to believe that it's between 30 to 35%. That's all. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's all. Like, there, there, there are cases where severe postpartum anxiety, psychosis, um, you know, um, sometimes physiological, physical health can interfere sleep with, with sleep. That's not what we're talking about today. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so hopefully everyone gets that. And we want to end with a little bit here. And this is just a, a small, because there's so much, but of what isn't normal. Because yes. sometimes in the quest to normalize infant sleep, we do forget that there are things where that are not normal. And it's not saying sleep is, is the issue. Again, sleep is a fever. It's the canary. It's, mm -hmm. It is indicative of something else. Sleep as a process is the problem. And just like so many of the symptoms we experience when we're sick are not the problem, right? Mm -hmm. It's when you have a cold, even it's the virus inside you. If you were to keep sneezing and people said, I think we better just cut off your nose. That's going <laughs> to solve that because then you won't sneeze. Well, that doesn't help us in any way, shape, or form. And so much of what our responses are to perceived sleep problems aren't even problems. So that's, you know, one issue. But when there is a problem, again, sleep training is not the answer. No. Because that is not addressing what is really wrong. And of course, as parents, we want to get at the heart of what's wrong. So I will start with, there are physical things that can affect sleep. And so we all know the basics of if your baby's sick, they don't sleep as well. So we start, that generally tends to be accepted. But more chronically speaking, a child who suffers long-term ear infections, 
will often struggle with sleep being put down. Babies with reflux can struggle with sleep because of pain when they're put down or the need to vomit all the time. Um, babies with sleep disordered breathing, that's a mm -hmm. huge one and something that absolutely needs to be looked at on a regular basis if there is a problem and get it assessed and looked at. Um, and infants with allergies, infants with eczema, the itching, mm -hmm. there are little babies who will itch themselves till they bleed and try sleeping through that. That's not exactly the epitome of a safe sleep environment. So really any of these physical issues that we see can be a problem. And unfortunately, in my experience working with families, many of these issues get overlooked by doctors. It becomes not because doctors are ignorant. And I always want to be careful here because so many doctors are conscientious about these things. They do, but they get the worst of the worst. When you're a doctor, you see clinical populations. So many babies may struggle with some of this stuff, but let's be honest, they're still thriving. They're gaining weight. They're doing this. A doctor's time is going to be spent on those who are doing way worse. And they have to, that is, you know, part of their job. And unfortunately, one of the changes I would love to see is more of a system in which we had, hey, I've got my emergency over here, and we have doctors specializing in that. And then also healthcare providers who can say, okay, something's not right. But mm. This is not life or death. We're not looking at a baby who is failing to thrive, who isn't gaining weight, who is, you know, needs IVs and everything else to go on. That should not be what we go. And then, of course, there's the fear that or the assumption, I guess, that we don't need to intervene in things that often kids will grow out of. Some kids do have, they struggle with the onset of food to digest everything. Those things often do solve themselves in time. But it doesn't mean it doesn't create problems at the moment. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to see sleep being affected. So yeah. that's one. And of course, then comes the next batch, which is early in life is feeding. If there yeah. are, yeah, right? Like feeding difficulties. Big, big. Huge. Huge. Because sleep. if I'm not, my tummy isn't full, how am I going to sleep? Mm -hmm. Or if I'm eating something and my tummy is not you know, mom's had something, if you're a breastfed baby and mom's um, had something that's not quite agreeing with, you know, my tummy, <laughs> I, can't, I cannot sleep. Yeah. And so I'm going to keep waking up. Um, formula feeding. Some babies don't tolerate formula very well. And that can affect sleep as well. And sometimes we're overfeeding the babies in the hope that they would sleep. And that's not very good either. So <laughs> yeah. feeding. Feeding is a big one. And I will say, if you are breastfeeding, you know, Please, if you can, and this is, again, where we need such a cultural and societal and policy shift. Every breastfeeding mother should have an IBCLC at her service. Yes. To just check in, support, etc. Um, and everyone who's not breastfeeding needs someone equally competent in the ins and outs of what kinds of formula can baby tolerate? What is causing a problem here or there? How much? What does paste feeding look like so that we aren't overfeeding? What flow nipple do they need? All this stuff should be a part because feeding can have a massive impact on sleep. So we have, that's another issue. And you should look at that. 
The third, I find, I call it psychological because it's more, it's not that there are psychological problems with your kid. So let's just start with that. That's not, we're we're not talking, they don't need a shrink. That's not going to solve things. It's more a combination of not understanding what they need for safety in a culture and pushing things that counter what they're looking for. So all of what we've talked about in terms of the attachment-seeking behaviors, the safety-seeking, that threat detection system going online, when we behave in ways that our culture tells us to, to put your baby down, to keep them separate, to not co-sleep, to do all that, that can lead to sleep problems if you have a child who is particularly susceptible to that. So some kids, and I think about orchid children here or high needs babies, they need that touch to regulate. And if they don't have it, they are physiologically dysregulated. And you can't sleep when you're physiologically dysregulated. You can't control your heart rate. You can't control your temperature. You know, your breathing may be off. All of that affects your body's ability to rest and sleep. So when we have people where there's this mismatch of expectations, the problem is the expectation and therefore the psychological troubles, distress that the baby can have in response to that. In adding to that, it's also mom's distress yes. at having a baby that isn't conforming to expectations. And so, uh, or if mom's had a traumatic birth, if mom's had, you know, postnatal um, anxiety or depression, sometimes that can influence the interaction with the baby. Because remember, babies are wired to pick up mom's state of mind. So instead of co-regulating baby, sometimes mom and baby are upregulating together and that can interfere with sleep. And so you have a mom who's anxious, mom or dad or caregiver, who's very highly anxious, um, is now having a baby that's unsettled and that becomes a vicious cycle because it's then mom cannot calm the baby therefore mom feels incompetent which makes her anxiety um you know uh rises the anxiety a little bit more baby is then picking that up and they're both into this vicious cycle of being upregulated together so sometimes in that instance i think separating baby and mom just so they can both calm down and ideally that separation should be partner dad um Fun grandparent, grandparent, cool neighbor, a village, you <laughs> yes. know, who'll come in and go, hey, mom, just chill for a bit. Go mm-hmm. to sleep. I've got your baby. Yeah. Baby's safe. You're safe. Let's reset this now. Yeah. Right. And also add into that the when it is more serious, it's not a one time thing of that upregulation. Yeah. But when there is yeah. something better mental health support because Uh, exactly and there's a fear and a stigma I know women have avoided seeking help for fear of are they going to take my baby what's going to happen with that and so we need a massive cultural shift in that regard to allow us not to see a mom seeking help as a threat but a mom seeking help as someone who who needs help or a dad a a parent Mm. seeking help Mm. it should not be seen as a threat no And, you know, I do want to reiterate that the separation should be temporary. So teaching the baby to sleep independently is not the solution for mom's mental health. 
Yeah. So using sleep training to justify that mom's really anxious and therefore baby needs to be sleep trained is not the solution. A temporary separation, like a reset, is what is needed, but not a permanent solution because you st- baby still needs mom to co-regulate and mom needs to be, have the mental capacity and the you know the mindset to be able to reset and therefore mental health support. So mom can be calm enough to co-regulate baby. Perfect. That's yeah. And the last one that I just want to touch on is this physiology. And so often I always laugh when I see, you know, baby took a long time to settle at night to fall asleep because half the time baby's not freaking tired. I know. I mean, <laughs> we have ideas of bedtimes and everything that just, I'm sorry, your kid's not tired. It just mm-hmm. doesn't work that way. And in that there's a lot of physio like physiological stuff that affects sleep so we have various hormones nutrients everything that all affect our circadian rhythm and all of those things can have an impact on sleep and so we need to look at making sure that you know is there an issue is there something in which we have families that are maybe just, you know, it can be as simple as having the lights on too late and their baby's particularly susceptible to that. But looking at the environment, because that's really what is dictating this physiological element to it. To add to the physiological element is also undiagnosed or possible neurodevelopmental conditions because we know for autism and things like that, melatonin release Mm -hmm. and uptake can be affected. And therefore, sometimes children who will later get diagnosed with either ADHD or autism can show quite significant sleep difficulties early on. Um, However... It doesn't mean that if your baby is not sleeping well, that they will go on to develop autism. It's it's it, it's not that. So I want to, you know, because yes. someone was told that, you know, that if you don't oh. put your baby down to bed properly, that they'll go on to develop autism. It's just bizarre. Yes. Uh, we do know that children who have a later diagnosis of autism can sometimes have had quite difficult um sleep patterns and that's because of the physiology and the melatonin release so it's just again sleep training is not the solution there yeah exactly (laughs) it's still it doesn't solve it and still no the other thing i want to bring up is also sensory processing disorder or sensory processing struggles more generally because those can also influence sleep as you know and you think about it if we're overstimulated there is a lot going on that makes it really hard to sleep and if we're understimulated and seeking sensations that also makes it happen. And the reason I like the word, you know, struggles is that it's not limited to kids who are later diagnosed with SPD is all children are seeking and, and avoiding certain inputs as they navigate the world and they navigate their own regulatory system. So having that is something that I think is really important to remember that sometimes it may be that your child's just overstimulated or understimulated. And it can be in certain areas. It may be a child that doesn't like the feel of a particular fabric, or there's too much noise going on outside, or they didn't move enough. And so lots of babies will actually seek proprioceptive input. It's why they like to be held and moved. And if they don't get that throughout the day enough, if they're very sedentary and not getting that movement with others, that can impact their sleep because they spend their nighttime wanting to move and and achieve that. And so they may roll around a lot, they may kick a lot, and all those things can then wake them up because they are 
unable to keep themselves asleep through that movement. So that's another area that kind of gets lumped in often, I find, with the neurodevelopmental process, but actually is something that is not about a disorder, but a very typical neurodevelopmental process. Mm -hmm. Agree. Yeah. So when we think about all these things, these tend to be, unless, am I missing any other area that we should bring up quickly about the flags? What are the real things that are killing the canaries? <laughs> I, th I think we've covered most of it, I think. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, so, uh, transitions, big transitions can also. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and but, they yeah. work on that physiological system. Big yes. transitions, signal stress, and cortisol, yep. when it rises, yep. keeps us from sleeping yep. well. So yep. this goes into that. So a lot of that stuff comes into that psychological or physiological struggle. And, you know, all of this is to say is that, Yes, most of your infant sleep is going to be normal. And there's going to be ups and downs that are natural that go along with this developmental process. That no study looking at X number of wakings or how long it takes to fall asleep is inherently indicative of a problem. And in fact, the research can't agree on what a problem actually is. So certainly you should not be taking this to heart as a parent. Mm -hmm. But there are things that can be a problem. And if it's a problem for you, it may be that there needs to be a different set of expectations. It may be that you need to look at what's happening underlying your kid's sleep. And there may be things to solve or at least explore. But most of the time, and in our world, your child's sleep is not a problem. It really, really isn't. So I hope people can understand, even if they're waking, even if they want to come talk to you at 5 a.m., even if they're five years of age and want to still snuggle with you and hop into bed on a regular basis, all of these are completely normal. Yes. Hopefully that doesn't terrify you too much. I still feel bad that I may have done that. But on that note. No. <laughs> thank you, Levita, for being here to go through this, because I, I think it's such an important topic for families to really understand that so much of what we're told about what a problem is, isn't really a problem. And so certainly, if you don't feel it's a problem, do not let anyone tell you it's a problem. Agree. Thank you for having me back. And I hope we can keep this discussion going. Yes, we will have much more to talk about next time. So stay tuned. And thank you once again for listening. That's it for this week. I hope you found the conversation enlightening and maybe just maybe feel that your baby doesn't have a sleep problem. Join me again next week as we delve into the world of infant empathy. I have with me Dr. Mayan Davidov, a researcher whose work is kind of turning on its head all our notions about what infants are capable of when it comes to empathic development. So it should be very interesting and I hope you'll join me then. In the meantime, Happy parenting.